Oh, I'm really excited to talk about this topic. Um, guys, this is, um, this is something that I've, has just been swirly in my mind for my whole life. It's been piecing apart um, what it looks like to work um, and do life, what fullness of life looks like um, in Jesus. And I, I think, um, I think I've, I've finally nailed something that I can communicate and not have my audience get lost. So um, please have patience with me. This is my first time like formally teaching it. Um, but I am really excited about the content, and I hope you guys gain a lot from it. So um, I'll start it off right away. I brought some uh, visual aids, which unfortunately the podcast will not have access to. This is not poison oak. This is, go ahead, organ blackberry. Uh, yeah, those of you guys from the Pacific Northwest would be very familiar. I don't know a single person from the Pacific Northwest that doesn't have an intimate story revolving Oregon blackberries. Um, pass it around, pass it around a little bit. When I was, um, when I was a boy, a young boy, uh, my papa had a, uh, like a two-acre property, just kind of a field, and along the one side of the property there was this awesome um, ancient barbed wire fence, uh, as older than the property itself, probably 100 years old, just... Um, lined up across the edge of the property, or the whole length of the acre. And, um, and I, pretty much for my entire life, never saw that fence because it was always completely covered in blackberry bushes. So every summer when it got really hot, I would, we would, the whole family would gather. We'd get plastic bowls and pots and pans and stuff and go out there and, and pick blackberries in the, in the summer heat. You know, blackberries are a late summer crop, and so it's, you know, I'm like six or seven. I'm sweating. It's hot. I'm tired, my mouth is black and covered in blackberries that didn't make it to the, the buckets, and my arms are bloody because I'm reaching into these blackberry bushes and picking out um, among the thorns. And <clears throat> yeah, and it's, um, and, and we would pick these big, we would spend all day just picking blackberries together as a family and fill up these buckets, and then my um, grandma, when she was still around, she would make homemade blackberry jam, and we would have blackberry jam all winter, and that is just such a defining part of my memory. You know, I think about like um, like work, like what fruitful work looks like, and that's work. That's work to me. That's toil, as the Bible calls it. It's sweat and blood and fruit and, um, and enjoyment, you know? It, it wasn't a chore to go out and pick blackberries. It was um, part of the blessing of summer that we would go and do that work. And so um, <clears throat> blackberries are, are very interesting to me, and they're very, I think, like I said, they're very intimate to people that grew up in the Pacific Northwest. They're um, a very special plant. They are wild and thorny. Yeah? How did you get the blackberry uh, plant here? Oh, there's uh, one down the hill that oh. I keep an eye on. Yeah. And I picked it this morning with some other specimens that we'll look at later. But um, the thing about blackberries that's so interesting to me is that they're native to the Pacific Northwest. These, this species of Oregon blackberry, it's, it's the uh, Latin name is Rubus ursinius, and it's, a, it's called bear bramble. I don't know if it's called bear bramble because it um, is unfortunate to touch like a bear would be, or if it's um, uh, because bears nest in it, or it's because bears can go through it when nobody, nothing else seems to be able to. Um, but it's this amazing plant. It's native to the Pacific Northwest. It's native to the western coast of America. Um, and it is a magical factory because it turns water into hundreds of acres of barbed wire. Um, it is a huge grower. It just consumes properties in the Pacific Northwest. Um, you know, where I lived in Washington, it would just, we would just watch it just take over fields. 
just grow and grow and grow. Um, and in California, that's not a problem. There's lots of droughts, there's you know, not a lot of water, and so they sort of are managed and they're kind of small, but in Washington, they are um, almost invasive, even though they're completely natural. They're a part of that um, environment, a part of that economy. Um, you can go on, this is the next slide. But, um, <clears throat> and my thought is like, how is something that is so natural, so belonging to that place, um, so at home there, be so like invasive, be so destructive, you know? <clears throat> People that are subscribed to kind of a like a humanist or um, like a naturalist view of the world, they you know they have this this mantra, right? It's eat or be eaten, survival of the fittest. But you know, if if that was true, then Washington would be nothing but a gigantic field of blackberries. It'd be consumed, right? This thing is not, it wasn't unfairly introduced. It's not bad for the environment. It's beloved by the animals. Its fruit is necessary for the ecology. It's um, a part of the bee ecology. It's a part of the animal ecology. It's even a part of, um, of, uh, of the like, plant ecology. So how is something so natural, so destructive for that place? You know, If eat or be eaten, if survival of the fittest is what's gonna happen there, then it would just wipe, like, the blackberries would just consume the entire state. But um, my assertion is that they were meant to be gardeners. They were meant to be people to take care of them and cut them back. And the image bearers of God in Washington, whether they knew it or not, have cut back blackberries since they've been there. Um, so I think it's really interesting because the, the blackberries to me are an image of like, they're, they're an image of destruction, right? They consume properties. They, but they're also an image of like Pacific Northwest. You know, I said, I, I talked about how destructive they are, but it's also impossible to not have intimate like r relationship with the plant. I, you know, I picked it out because because I have so many great memories revolving around the blackberries that are so awful to touch. And so, um, yeah. So, why don't you guys open your Bibles? We're going to look at Genesis chapter two. And what I want to look at here, we we're really going to pay attention here to to what work looked like, like what, what was man's purpose in the, in the garden, right? We looked at, we're, we're looking at Genesis 2, so this is before the fall, this is Adam in the garden with God. Um, we're going to read along, and I'm just going to share my interpretations as we go, okay? So we're going to look at 2, 1 through 25. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. The Bible should probably have ended there. Everything, like, that's it. The earth is finished. This is so, God, God does this all the time throughout scriptures. He calls something finished with quotes, and then, um, and then there's like a bunch left. There's so much more to do. And I think that's so interesting to me that like God finished his work. He finished the earth, and then there's like mankind. And then there's like work to be done. And, and I don't, it's just interesting to me. <clears throat> and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the heaven and the earth. Verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. We're Enter your imagination here. We're, we are picturing as ancient Near East farmers empty farmland. That's what I just described. Just dirt. It's just a field of dirt. 
That's what the Bible just used a lot of words to say. Big field of dirt. There were no plants. And listen, listen to what God says why there's no plants. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. There you go. Why do we just have dirt? There's no rain, and there's no man. And a mist was going over the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So there wasn't water yet. You know, there was, the ground was not watered. We're looking at dry dirt. And then it says a mist comes over the land, and suddenly our imagination is like irrigated farmland. That's what we're looking at. We're looking at wet dirt, mud. And the ancient Near Eastern farmer reader is going, that's what I do. <laughs> then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the ancient Near Eastern farmer that's reading is going, yeah, that makes sense. I do that. I'm from that. It makes sense. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. This is... Um, so interesting, the earth was finished. We just said the earth was finished. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And the east in scripture is, is usually indicative. It talk, the east is mysterious. It's, it, it, in the future, when man, after man falls, the east becomes a picture of like unlawful men. It becomes the far off mysterious death world. So the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Our great arborist, the, the tree keeper. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now this next section, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to precursor a little bit. We're going to talk about rivers and people get really hung up about rivers. Joy talked about this yesterday a little bit. Um, I want you to try again to enter the mind of the ancient Near Eastern farmer reader. And the four rivers that are described are the rivers on which every gigantic civilization that you know of live. So what you're supposed to think about the rivers is that they are powerful forces that bring life. They are the foundation of civilization. If there is a river, there is an opportunity for humans to flourish. So a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Now, why are we told that there is gold? Does anybody know? Anybody want to guess? It makes sense but why? Where, where do you keep your gold, usually? In a safe place. Well, yeah, but where before it gets to the safe place? Deep beneath the earth. Yep. So why are we told that there's gold? We're, our imagination right now is just naked humans running around a garden. And then all of a sudden we get this, like, there's gold there. And you're like, what? Why? What's the gold for? And the gold of that land is good. Oh, that's interesting. Because in the ancient Near Eastern imagination, you might be like, well, gold becomes money, and money's evil, and we should probably not. But the gold is good? <clears throat> Delium and onyx stone are there, too. Those are also precious stones. Same thing. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. Now, also in the ancient Near Eastern mind, land of Cush is also a land of gold. All of the gold of the ancient world came from Cush. You talk about the, um, what is it? Uh, like in Solomon's day, there's the, um, the Queen of Sheba. Some think that she came from down in the land of Cush. Or a lot of the Egypt of gold came from the land of Cush. So same thing. You're thinking there's treasures in the ground. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So what we're supposed to think about this river, what I, my interpretation here, what I think we're supposed to think about this river, is this is the king of all rivers. Everything is here for human life. 
We have a perfect garden. We have this promise of like treasures hidden under the earth, which is strange. And we have this river that is like the king of all rivers, the source of all rivers. If all of these other rivers sprouted civilizations that are ridiculous and crazy and huge and powerful, how much more is this river to which they all come from, you know? So it's just this image of like absolute abundance. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And I love, this is so simple, guys. The word put is just so neutral to me. Like in the scriptures where it's always like exiled or like, or like they took the land. There's just this like, plunk, like, like boop, you know? I don't know, I don't know. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. Hang on to that. Work and keep it. Work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree, uh, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Oh, guys, the first profession of mankind. Taxonomy. Ordering and naming animals. It's, I love that. I, when I realized that, I just, it was so amazing to me. The first profession of mankind was science. A, a biologist. And there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And there we go. Perfect mankind living in perfect unity with God and each other. And what is man doing in the garden? He's doing what God, what he sees God do. Ordering, classifying, creating. He sees what God is doing and he, do, he does it too. And so we have it, fulfilled mankind. Beauty beyond beauty. Abundance beyond abundance. Our wonderful biologist poet and his wife put to work to steward and enjoy the finished world. I actually forgot back here. Chapter 2, when he says, this at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is poetry. The second profession of mankind, poetry. Biologist, poet. <clears throat> I love it. And already, there are uncountable professions. Every human occupation described. We have taxonomy, biology, dendrology, horticulture, agriculture, ichthyology, potomology, geology, metallurgy, artistry, husbandry. Can we think of any more? And all of these are before the fall. That is what is so crazy to me. The point here is that these occupations, right, these, these jobs, this work that was to be done, was valuable before there was a reason for us to give it value. These physical pursuits are not validated by any outside circumstance, except that God intended that we do them and enjoy doing them. And there was expectation of improving them. You know, we have this image of the gold in the ground. Why are we told that there's gold in the ground if not we were supposed to go dig it up? Yeah. Is it like the gold is in the ground? Is like that kind of just the expectance? Or is it like 
Well, who would? Who knows? Who knows? But I know that I've never found gold lying around. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. well. So before there were communities to work to the benefit of, there's no people yet. Before there were broken hearts to minister to, there's no fall. Before there was fallen man to evangelize, there was a valuable work to be done. And this just blows our understanding of work out of the, out of the water. I think so often, especially in a Western mindset, we think that work is like somehow evil. But real work, true work, good, valuable work, is remnant of Eden. It is a part of mankind's purpose. The desire to create, study, explore, build, write, farm, whatever, climb, is not contrary to God's purpose for you. It is a remnant of that ancient call to work and keep. It is a part of the purpose. The purpose is experienced in those things. You guys ready for a... Another visual aid. Oh, boy. Ah. You know, you fill a bag full of thorns, and you think you're going to have problems. Yeah, I picked up roadkill for you. That's what I did. No, no. This is um, another weed common to uh, California. It is the yellow star thistle. Go ahead and touch those thistles and tell me what you think of them. I keep forgetting to move my thing. What's the, uh, what's the general feeling with these uh, thistles, guys? Ouch. Ouch. You feeling ouch? Yeah, have you ever stepped on one? It's not. It's not. Uh, I have uh, made my feet bleed many a time stepping on these thistles. Yeah, isn't it just the worst? Yeah. What were you wearing when you stepped on it? Well, I, sometimes in the summer, it'll, it'll catch the edge of my foot outside of my sandal. Um, I've learned better than to walk barefoot here. Thank you. <clears throat> you guys want to touch these things? You're very, you're very familiar. <laughs> so Californians tend to really hate the plants in California. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. You've only been here a week. Um, they hate the plants in California. You hear Californians talk about it left and right. They hate how brown it is. They hate how, how you can't walk outside barefoot. They talk about the goat heads and the thistles and the cactuses. And they're just like, everything sucks here. And <clears throat> <laughs> you know, some were spiky, painful brown, evil, all words to describe the uh, plant life in California. Um, and this plant in particular is a big one in the mountain area. People love to drag on this plant. They would never know what to call it by name. They might know a thistle, or they might call it a star thistle, but it is um, unknown to them. And uh, all it is to them is a, is a pox in their side, a spiky thing in their foot. Um, and I love this plant. Because this plant isn't from California. It's not even from the United States. Um, the yellow star thistle is from the Mediterranean, uh, which is on the other side of the world. Um, it was introduced accidentally, supposedly, by gold rush farmers who brought 
cattle um, seed and they threw grass seed out and the star thistle started blooming. But um, what I think is so interesting is like it's blamed for, it's blamed for California being like inhospitable. But it's not California's fault that it's here. Um, and the thing is, most Californians don't seem to care. They don't seem to care to know that, it, that what this is or why it matters that it's here. But any frustration with this plant, really, unfortunately, should be met with a deep sorrow and maybe even frustration with man's failure to steward this place. This weed came and multiplied and took over because we were ignorant and we weren't paying attention. And now we've gone so far out of our ignorance that we blame this place for this dumb thing that we introduced. Another big one in California is goat heads. I didn't find any for you guys, thank God. Um, uh, but they're also just weeds from the Mediterranean, wrongfully introduced. I think goat heads were introduced um, to try and help because instead of studying about this place, instead of learning how to steward it, they brought a plant over that they thought would help keep the ground together and they planted the worst thing ever uh, all over the place. And then it grew and it spread and it's weedy and it took over and it devoured, um, and it devoured like countrysides. And it makes me think, in Genesis 3, at the fall, I'm going to just quote a little bit for you guys. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat the food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return. I love the farming industry, the farming imagery in... Um, in Genesis, because it's like, I, I think, yes, in a way, we're supposed to take it allegorically, but also not. Like, how true is that scripture? Like, I'm, I'm, I just passed out a promise from God that thorns and thistles the ground would bring up for us. Why did, are there thorns and thistles here? Because we brought them here. It was our fall, our failure to stewardship, our failure to participate in the call of mankind that caused that thing to sprout up all over the place here. And now we blame California like it's, you know, not our fault. But it's, for me, just a remnant of, of the fallen nature of mankind. This plant is like, this plant is just the promise of God for our disobedience. And the thing about this plant, I, I don't want to go too far into this. It's kind of off my notes. The thing about this plant, this yellow star thistle, is it's not hard to weed. It's actually not hard to get rid of at all. Some plants, some weeds really are. This one is not. In fact, what I just did here, you see it's still got all of its buds and flowers and stuff. I cut it off with my pocket knife. Um, it probably won't grow back. None of the seed pods fell. They're pretty stuck in there. And if you catch them before the seed pods fell, that's it. That's it. If you are faithful to weedy your, uh, your field, um, you can pretty much eradicate this without even trying which is just so frustrating to me, right? That this invasive plant that harms the human experience, that harms the ecological experience for the plants and animals here, is so easy to get rid of. And instead of thinking about it as something that needs to be stewarded, we place it in a box that says, well, it's just the way it is. Well, it just sucks because it sucks, you know? I guess we're just stuck with it. Ugh. Let's review a little bit. God has made us to work. 
In fact, six-sevenths of the time we are to work. That work is valuable, not because it's necessarily useful, but because it's part of the human assignment to work and keep. Humans and work are both valuable, not because they fill some sort of utilitarian purpose. I think that's so Western of us, to think like what we do has to do, has to accomplish some sort of thing to be useful. But the scripture that I just read is against that. There was nothing to do but be, but to do these, these jobs, you know, this work. This work wasn't evil, this work wasn't hurtful, it wasn't painful, it was good. And in a way, I think it, you know, it caused us to sleep, caused us to take rest seriously. Right after Adam works, it says, and God caused a deep sleep to fall on him. It's like, uh, we, I think in our imagination, we're just like mystical, like God hand, just like, and he's out. But I don't know, maybe he was tired. Maybe the day's work put him to sleep. <sighs> Some truths here. That work has gotten harder. The curse made work harder but not less good. That's the problem, right? Work got harder, got more painful, but it didn't get less good. There's this human idea, this very Western idea, again, that says, like, we escape, you know? That once we step into the heavenly realm, we're out of uh, all that working stuff, and we can really just relax on the beach, which is what we wanted to do our whole life anyway. That's just absurd to me. Work has gotten harder, but not less good. But guess what? Humans have gotten less good. A common mistake of modern man is to assume that because work is now sweaty, by the sweat of your brow you will produce your food, because work is now sweaty, it is evil. That is a mistake. The sweat is our fault. We introduce the weeds. California is not spiky because it's evil. California is spiky because we're bad stewards. <laughs> Our work is incapable of being done well. And it's not because the work is bad, but because the workers are sinful. The poison of sin disabled our ability to work and keep. Does that make sense? We introduced this, and now, for some reason, we can't get there again. Not by our own strength. This is, guys, can you tell I'm setting up for the gospel? It's not by our own strength that we can actually fulfill the human assignment to work and keep. The purpose of our biologist poet is left unfinished and unfinishable. That's what the fall has left us with. I assume you guys know where I'm going with this. Let's uh, open our Bibles back up. Romans 5, 12 through 21. 5, uh, 12 through 21, yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'm going to read it uh, for the sake of the recording. Keep that Eden imagery in mind, that that Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
We have peace. Well, nope, this is not right. Where am I? 12. One second. Ah, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift of God is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, this is a big section. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience will many, many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. To renew our power to work and keep, to fulfill the human condition, all we needed was one good steward. That's what that verse says, right? Through one man sin entered the world, but through one man's perfection, we can be made righteous again. And it's crazy that that scripture is so beautiful because it because it shows how how this like little act of like sin entering the world is just overshadowed by the act of Jesus on the cross. That Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, the fulfillment of the gospel for mankind, can renew us now to our purpose to work and keep. <clears throat> and uh, the New Testament has, has different language for the same thing. You know, where the Old Testament might say work and keep or um, toil <laughs> sometimes. Um, the New Testament calls it reigning. All we needed was one good steward. Throughout the whole Old Testament, we see that it is like every time that something is stewarded well, that something is done well, that work is accomplished, that there is actual progress made on earth. It's not by man's ability. It is by God through man. It is God enabling man to do the work. The second Adam, Jesus, he's no longer biologist, poet, carpenter, servant. He came enabled. He came ready to do the work, work and keep. And in Jesus, we experience new life. I think we we just Christianize this language so much. New life, new life, restored life, must look like that Genesis 2. That promise, right? The promise of gold in the ground, the promise of progress, the promise of fulfilled human life and condition, you know? The promise of restored, perfect relationship with humans, perfect relationship with God. We're not just like going to escape to like some heavenly Cabo and like sit out on the beach. You know, like I think that's so, where do we get that? Like 
Whenever the scriptures talk about paradise, my mind goes to Genesis 2. This is what I want. I want work. I want work and rest perfectly with God, with people, in perfect creation. As, this is kind of my my thesis here, right? As we become more like Jesus, as we participate in sanctification, we become more and more like people who can participate in the human purpose again. We dream about these things. We have this like hope for creation, this hope for Jesus, this hope for heaven because we are being made to participate in it again. We're being made to belong to Eden again. It's a little early for a break. We can go into the next section, get this started a little bit. You guys get your notes down. The verse was somewhere. One sec. Uh, Romans 5, 12 through 21. Mm. As we become more like Jesus, we become more and more like people who can participate in the human purpose again. You guys ready? Gotta find my water. Joe, can you get me some water? All right. You guys ready? Almost? A theology of stewardship. This has been, like, seriously, my life's goal, is to figure this out. Um, I just got so disappointed with this idea of the human purpose, um, as defined by American Westernism, conflicting with my uh, understanding of scripture. Um, I just had to figure this out. So we're going to talk about stewardship. We're going to talk about things that I um, think are necessary for stewardship um, and, and kind of define those terms a little bit. I'm sure you guys all have sort of heard the word stewardship thrown around. I'm sure your mom has given you some, you know, lesson or talking to where you needed to steward the things God has given you more, you know. I don't know. Does somebody even want to try to attempt, attempt to uh, define stewardship for me? That's cheating. You can't look up a definition. Uh, actually, what does the definition say? There we go. I might use that a little bit. Somebody want to try and define it in their own words? Yeah, what's up? Um, I just think of stewardship as like almost being thankful for the stuff that God's given you by mm-hmm. doing it right and taking care of it. Mm-hmm. But what does that mean, taking care of it? Um, well, it depends on what he has gifted you. Like me, he has given me cattle to work and so mm-hmm. I Mm-hmm. Because of the work or 
Yeah, it's true. It's a really um, sweet Old Testament promise. Yeah. You know, the whole idea of the promised land is that you can go and possess the land and enjoy the fruit of its labor, right? That you can labor and enjoy your own fruit. That's, if you read um, the Old Testament, especially the law, um, the Torah, and you, uh, and you kind of track that, oh, you'd be surprised, guys. There's so many times. Every time that, that there's, a, there's a failure on Israel's part, they lose their right to enjoy the fruit of their labor. That's the whole thing, the, that the image of paradise for them is to enjoy the fruit of their labor. We'll get to that. Okay. Anybody else? One more? Want to try? Yeah. Taking owners of it or something? Mm-hmm. To take ownership of it, yours, like you want to take care of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay, well, let's jump into it a little bit. So I'll, I'll define the word a little bit. Stewardship comes from, it, it's kind of the definition that you read off the internet. Stewardship comes from um, Old English and Germanic. It's stig, weird, it means house manager. Um, so the person that takes care of the house. And I think in the modern sense, it's, it's an ethical principle. Um, it means the responsible management uh, one sec. The responsible planning and management of something for the improvement of that thing. Does that make sense? Thank you, sir. Yeah. Do you want more than this? In essence, here, right, it is the divine human purpose. Work and keep. What else is work and keep except for stewardship, right? That's what the definition I just said. It's, it's the responsible planning and management of something for the improvement of that thing. This is a really important thing. The thing that you steward has to improve for it to have been stewarded. Does that make sense? If I am given a field to work, to farm, right, and I go and stand out in that field, and I stand there and I make sure that I keep my eye on that field and I watch it for 24 hours and um, nothing happens to it and I feel good about it, and somebody comes along and is like, hey man, How's it going, steward in that field? I'm like, oh, great. We're doing great. I'm just standing out in the field. Hasn't changed at all. I'm really happy about it. It's, um, I think, effectively stewarded. How absurd is that, right? That's crazy. No, there has to be movement. Okay, we're going to get to that. I'm getting ahead of myself. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Would you apply that principle? Do you think that would be appropriate to apply the principle to the parable of the talents? Oh, yeah, we'll get there. Oh. Don't, even, don't even worry. Don't even worry. You're jumping ahead, skipping ahead. <laughs> Stewardship requires, you don't have to write these down, just a sec. We'll, we'll get, I'll give you something noteworthy in a second. It requires creativity, effort, devotion, but the thing that is really important for stewardship is it requires hope, right? To hope in something to be better without the foundation of Jesus in this world is completely futile. How can you hope in something to be better? We just looked. This is proof, right, that we are incapable of hoping for something to be better without Jesus. We need Jesus to enable us to to make things better. We hope to make things better, and that's kind of the the foundation of stewardship. In order to steward, you have to hope that it gets better. Hope that it can be better. Hope that Jesus will help you make it better. How can you even think to steward well without the perfect steward enabling you to? 
my theology of stewardship says, this is what I am made for. Also, oh God, please help me. Right? My theology of stewardship says, this is mine. I have to do this. I want to do this. This is what I'm made to do. I am incapable of doing this without Jesus. <sighs> and here's, here's the thing that's really noteworthy that you guys can write down. We're going to get to this. To do stewardship is to take the things that God has given you dominion over and multiply them through implementation. So you're, you're taking the things that God has given you and you are applying yourself to that thing for its improvement. <clears throat> We're going to kind of talk about, I have these laws of stewardship, things that you must do in order for something to be steward, stewarded, and you can write them down. There are going to be categories we'll go over them. It's dominion, growth, and creativity. Uh, to do stewardship is to take the things in which God has given you dominion over and to multiply them through creative implementation. And the three things are dominion, growth, and creativity. We're going to talk about those. I'm thinking this might be a good time to take a break before we get into these points. I know it's a little early for snack. We'll pick up snack right before we sit back down. How does that sound? Okay, let's take a break. All right, I just want to hear what you, from you guys, like, First of all, are there any questions so far? And is there anything that really stood out to you that you want to share? Yeah. What do you, what do you like to practice as stewardship? Oh, yeah. We'll get into it. Um, but what, uh, when I sort of discovered this, uh, discovered's not really the right word. When I was developing this idea, um, it was very, like, implicational. So as I was understanding more and more my role, I think what, what really I was discovering is what it meant to participate in the human purpose, you know? Um, I was getting really tired of um, this just idea that, like, I'm trying to think how much of this I want to get into. Anything that God has given me in my life deserves to be stewarded. And, and we'll talk about what that really means. We've talked about stewardship as a definition, but I want to talk about what it really actually means to steward something. If you are going to really take captive everything in your life, every moment in your life for stewardship, then it needs to be done well. Because really what I'm defining here, guys, is like this word stewardship, this is the human purpose, right? Like we were designed, created to work and keep. One day, Jesus is going to return and we're going to be placed in the new earth, the new creation. You know, the kingdom of heaven will be made manifest forever on earth. And there's not going to be evangelism to do, right? There's something else out there. And I think Genesis gives us a picture of what it can look like. So, yeah, we'll get there. That's, that's true. Um, something that stood out was just, like, usually, like, reading, like, those first couple chapters of Genesis, you usually just kind of read over it and don't really think about it. Mm -hmm. So that's what I, I kind of need perspective on. Kind of like. mm -hmm. Yeah, Genesis has always been very inspiring to me because I want I the human the human condition is to long for heaven right we long for heaven we long for for a perfect world again and uh and Genesis is just like this is what it was this is what it will be again this is what it can be again and there's going to be something even sweeter about it the, the next time around you know there's going to be the hindsight of all that God did for us in between anyway anything else Eden wasn't really that good for the old 
We'll get there. We'll get there. We're going to get there. But yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, we think of like, we have all of these like westernized or Catholicized ideas of what heaven looks like. I was going to talk about heaven. We're not going to go too much because it's a bit of a tangent. But um, it's a good tangent. It is a good tangent. Catch me at lunch. Um, but, uh, but we have this like very like Catholicized is the best way to put it, idea of what heaven is like. But the Old Testament readers, reading the Old Testament, reading the prophets, reading this idea of the promised land, reading this idea of, the, of paradise, right? Their imagery for that was the Garden of Eden. That's what I want my imagination to, to go to. When Jesus says, surely, surely, today you'll be with me in paradise, I want my imagination to go right into the Garden of Eden. So, without further ado, the first law of stewardship, dominion. When I was um, older, around 16, my folks moved. We, we picked up our whole family and moved from my childhood home, and we bought this property, 11 acres, um, out in the Washington countryside. Um, beautiful piece of property. We started to raise sheep. We had chickens. We did the whole, like, um, like urban farmstead thing where everybody's just like, let's go live off the land and stop working in Seattle. And, um, <clears throat> and so uh, we moved out there, and... We had this really nice area. This, this property was kind of two-tiered. So it was on like a, there's a nice plateau, and then there was a hill, and then there was another plateau that made up the top and bottom pastures. And so on one of the hills, when we moved there, it was covered in blackberry bushes. Blackberry bushes like 10 feet tall. Um, and when we got there, it was just like, I just knew. It was, it was just descended from heaven to me on my shoulders that it was my responsibility to cut down all those blackberry bushes. So after church one day, we, uh, I was like, Dad, Dad, can we stop by Can we stop by Home Depot? I need to pick something out. So we go to Home Depot, and I bought myself a 20-inch uh, machete. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know how they let me buy it. I, <laughs> I, I don't, they won't, listen, they won't even let you buy spray paint at Home Depot without your ID, but I walked out with a 20-inch machete. No problem. It was a different time. It, I, it wasn't that different. <laughs> so, but I, I bought this nice Fiskars orange handle, pre-sharpened 20-inch machete, and we, uh, we got back, and I made it my summer goal to cut down all those blackberry bushes. And so, so I went out there every day. Um, I had a friend loan me these um, kangaroo skin gloves. Kangaroo, oh, yeah. kangaroo leather is stronger than um, pretty much any other leather. Yeah. And I have never been able to find gloves like them again. He gave them to me with 10 years of use on them. And still, I could grab a blackberry stem and just pull and yank all the thorns out without it going through my glove. They were magical. Um, and I just worked them into the ground. Seriously, if you guys ever find kangaroo skin gloves, I will pay top dollar for them. Bring them to me. Um, so, so I went out. I went out. I would, I would, I would get into the kitchen. I'd get up early, and I would, I would make my breakfast, and then I'd um, take as much allergy medicine as I could because I'm deathly allergic to everything that grows in Washington. Um, so I would just load up on allergy medicine. I would go out. I'd grab my machete. I'd run along the sharpening stone. Um, I'd put on my deer skin glove or my um, kangaroo skin gloves, and I would go out, and I spent all summer just hacking at those blackberry bushes on a steep hill. So you're like hacking down, and you're like almost cutting your foot off several times, and um, and I'm bleeding all the time. My arms were just covered in cuts all like all summer, 
And at the end of the summer, I cut all those blackberry bushes down. I made a huge dent. The, the field was clear. It just, the, there was, the top, the top pasture and bottom pasture were connected, unified now. Um, and it was a ton of work, but it was, in a, in a way, sort of the, that toil, right? The, and I'm telling you this because it's kind of a reflection of that childhood moment picking blackberries. It's the same experience, but it's, you know, sort of a different thing now. And, and now my dominion has called me to remove them, to cut down the blackberry bushes. And so that's what I did. In order, and so here's the point here with dominion. In order to steward anything, you must be over that thing. That's your note for the your note point. In order to steward anything, you must be over that thing. Does that make sense? I cannot steward the Zimbabwean government. Um, any more than I can steward my neighbor's lawn. Uh, they are not mine to steward. They have um, different dominion. They are not under my dominion. You must be over it, right? You can't steward something that you're not over. Sometimes that's difficult. Imagine you work at, um, like a, you work at McDonald's or something, right? And you just find it so difficult. I know you worked at McDonald's. And you find it so difficult to make any sort of improvement because your manager is against you. And your manager really has not given you dominion over anything, right? This, that's a huge point of stagnation in the workforce is when, when that dominion is not handed over, then people are not able to steward. That's why the work feels so useless, so pointless to you because you aren't actually allowed to apply yourself to it. It's not under your dominion. God loves to grant dominion. He bequeaths dominion on us, even with our track record. We fail all the time, but he's just like, more responsibility. And we're like, why? We're like, I can't even do this thing. And he's like, no, no, I'm with you. I'm going to help you with this. You are over this. Let's do this. Dominion can be given by God, and it can be given by man. If you have been given dominion over something, you have the ability to give other people dominion over that thing. Now, sometimes that's a mistake. Sometimes that's not what you should do. Sometimes you should not give dominion to somebody over a thing. Um, but I think you'll find that the more you give dominion away, the more God will give you dominion, and the more the people you give dominion to will be able to actually express themselves, to actually steward, right? I want to make this definition, this defining line for us, guys. Work is not good if it's not stewardship, right? If it's not stewardship, if it doesn't look like stewardship, you are wasting your time. I'm sure you feel it, too. If you've ever been in a job where uh, your work is a complete waste of time, right? It's not stewardship. You are not improving anything. And it's like, I, it's like what, what am I really doing with that field that I'm cutting down blackberries for, right? I was given dominion over it, and I cut down the blackberry, blackberries. We're not going to use that field. It's on a steep hill. You know, it's, the blackberries weren't necessarily hurting anybody. But the work, for some reason, was valuable to me. There was accomplishment. There was goal met. There was um, weeds removed. You know, the f regardless of how we use that hill, the property was improved. That makes it fun. It makes it good to us. It fills our spirits, you know. It is an image of what Eden work can look like, what heavenly work looks like. And so, what was I talking? So yeah, so this line here, right, we want to separate this idea that work can be done without stewardship. Right? Or let's say work can be done without stewardship, but it sucks. Right? If you're not allowed to steward it, then the work feels awful. And we all have to do work sometimes that isn't stewardship. We all have to do work sometimes that isn't under our dominion. 
Um, but that's not the goal, right? We're in pursuit of this idea where stewardship of the earth is one, bequeathed to us again, and two, that we're ready for it, that we're prepared, that we're made like Jesus so that we could actually steward the things. So you can ask God for dominion. This is dangerous. Um, <coughs> you can ask God for dominion, but more than likely, you already have and are ignoring a bunch of stuff that's in your dominion. I would not ask God for dominion if you have not first cataloged all of the things that you already have dominion over. Um, it's, I want to give you guys a little bit of encouragement here. It's probably less than you think, but more than you're currently doing. So that's, um, you asked earlier how I actually engage in stewardship in my life. That's the, one of the biggest things. What do I have dominion over? If I have dominion over something, it is in my care to steward. If I am not stewarding it, I'm wasting my time. And remember, going back, this work that we're doing is valuable just because, right? I think that's so frustrating sometimes. It's like, we have to validate stewarding something. That just is wrong. It's the other way around, right? So. <clears throat> right, and you know, sometimes you need to sacrifice, like, what I want you to hear is I'm not enabling you guys to just do whatever you feel like, you know? <laughs> but I am telling you that these things, these things that you have been given, given dominion over, you know, whether they're at physical talents, right? We talk about this all the time in the church circles. It's like stewardship of my gift of playing guitar and stuff. But it's like, what about stewardship of your bedroom? What about stewardship of your teeth? What about stewardship of your muscles? What about stewardship of your car that you've been given? What about stewardship of the money that you've been given? What about stewardship of your time and DTS, right? What about stewardship with your minute by minute? Stewardship of your quiet times. Stewardship of everything that you own. If you think about stewarding everything that you own, I think you'd be more likely to give away a lot of stuff. If you're like, oh my gosh, it's all, I have to take care of all of it. It's all mine to steward. I have too much stuff. That's actually, I think that's a good conclusion to come to. Um, <clears throat> your body, your relationships, your relationships. <laughs> now, I go through seasons. I have three little sisters. I love them dearly. I have a beautiful relationship with my sisters. They're all different. They're all very different. Um, they all require different levels of um, attention. And, um, and there are some seasons of my life where I really feel like my focus is not on, their relationship, on my relationships with them, you know? And I think that's a gift from God, to be like, actually, yes, you have dominion over these relationships. You are, um, well, in a way, it's co-dominion with this other person. But, <clears throat> but, uh, but in this season, it's not for you to really put all your effort into. We're going to set that dominion aside. I'm going to, in a way, let this rest and we're gonna focus on this. And then there's other seasons where it's like, no, 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 no. This is yours to steward now. Does that make sense? Well, after I finished DTS, I, um, I was dating this girl that ended up being my wife. It's great, great news. And um, I remember getting done with DTS and, uh, and I wanted so badly to go back on staff. I was like ready to not come home. I was like, I'm ready. All my friends are joining staff. I'm gonna staff DTSs. I'm gonna go overseas. I'm gonna die on the mission field. And, uh, and God was like, no, no, no. I'm like, what? What? He's like, this thing, this relationship that you asked me to bless, that I'm blessing, this thing that can be and maybe will be marriage, go home and steward that. So it's like I have this call, right? I have this call 
on my life to be a part of missions. I have this call on my life to engage in the Great Commission, like we all do. Uh, but in that season, God called me to steward something else. Uh, and I think that's the biggest thing. Do you have dominion over it? And is God calling you to have dominion over it? Mm-hmm. In relationship, so like any relationship, whether it be a romantic or a friendship, mm-hmm. do you think that it's difficult to steward, steward it because both parties have dominion over mm-hmm. it? Yeah, and I think sometimes there are... Um, this is kind of my thought, not scripture, but I think sometimes there are varying levels of dominion. So I'm sure we've all been in relationships where you really don't feel like you have any control over the relationship. Sometimes that's true. I think most of the time it's not really, but um, this idea that, that dominion can sort of um, teeter-totter, you know, that someone can have more dominion. The idea is co-dominionship over the relationship. I am not, I do not have dominion over I do not have 100% dominion over my relationship with my wife. However, I have 100% dominion over my interaction with my wife, right? Which is for the relationship. So, <clears throat> does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Control what you can. Yeah. Trust God with your wife. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of like controlling other relationships. Yeah, 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 yeah. Controlling your stewardship of your relationship. Yep, exactly. There you go. Here's the other thing. When you attempt to steward things that you do not have dominion over, I think you can imagine how frustrating that is. You cannot steward something that is not in your dominion. And that's very strange. We get these weird kind of weird, like, thing, we get this weird thinking about dominion where it's like, well, this is mine. It's like, well, no, it's God's. And he gives you dominion over it, right? Or, I mean, that is true on a huge theological cosmic level, but on a much smaller level, sometimes it's like, well, actually, no, this house is the bank's, but they've given you dominion over it, you know, or whatever. <clears throat> don't steward things that aren't in your dominion, but if they should be in your dominion, ask God for them. And if they should not be in your dominion, don't ask God for them. Make sense? Um, if you want to search the scriptures for stuff like this, this, the Israel's labor laws in the Torah is very... It's just indicative of this. God says, I'm about to give you a lot of dominion, a huge land for your inheritance. Do not screw it up. This is how you not screw it up. Please, I'm going to give you dominion over this and this and this. I'm taking away dominion from all of these other tribes. You are going to have this land to be yours. I'm giving you dominion over it. This is how we're going to do it. So you can find that in the scriptures. Oh, they ruin it. They do not take dominion. They do not listen to God. Okay. Point two. Growth. We talked about this already. Stewardship is an exercise in growth management. Stewardship is an exercise in growth management. I heard this story one time. Um, people attributed names, like famous people names, to the people in the stories. I don't know if that's true, so I'll just tell it like without names. But I heard the story about a DTS student that goes to the DTS leader and goes, leader, leader, please give me something to lead. I want to be a leader. I feel like God's calling me to be a leader. I want to lead this thing. 
And the DTS leader goes, okay, come with me. And uh, opens up this closet, this broom closet, and there's just a bunch of garbage in this closet, and it's disorganized, and there's no shelves, and like just stuff is piled on top of each other. It's like, you are officially leader of this closet. Goodbye. And uh, leaves him to his devices. And, and he's like, what? Like, I don't want to do this. And um, but he's like, I guess I'm the leader of this closet. I'll keep watch. I'll make sure nobody puts anything in here that's not supposed to be in here. And I'll just leave it. And, uh, and a week later, the DTS leader comes back and opens up the closet. And is like, let's see how you did. It looks exactly the same. And the guy's like, yeah, I took care of it. I made sure nobody put anything in it. And the DTS leader's like, no, you did not lead this, this closet. This closet's not led. Try again. Close the door, walk away, left to his own devices. Another week goes by. This time, he's like, I think I'm getting it. So he cleans the closet. He takes everything out. He wipes everything down. He puts everything back in a neat and orderly way. Um, still no shelves, nothing like that. It's just kind of stacked on top of each other. He gets rid of a couple of garbage things. And a week later, she comes in and she goes, ah, well, you still have not really led this closet. Close the door and leaves. And now the DTS student's starting to get it, and he, um, he makes a plan. He's like, okay, this closet has to improve. We have to grow this closet. So he designs shelves, and he organizes where things should go in the closet, and decides that these things should not be in his closet. They should be in this other closet. And, uh, and he takes dominion over this closet. He paints it. He puts in shelves. He puts in organization things. He spends his own money, his own resources on it. And a week later, the DTS, comes back, the DTS leader comes back and opens the door, and is like, well, this is led. You have led this closet. Come on, let's find something else for you to lead. So <clears throat> this story is like really sweet to me because it's just like, it just, it goes again over what I've been saying this whole time. You cannot steward something if that thing is not improved. In order for something to have been stewarded, it must have improved. If you did not improve it, if it did not improve in your care, you did not steward it. Does anybody want to try and prove me wrong? Anybody have an example? Do you want to be? I love, I love, oh, I, yeah, Ar arguing is, is my love language. Um, okay. Never. So why do you think that arguing? Oh, we'll get to it, but, uh, yeah. I can give any good examples, but I'm like, I feel like I'm. Yeah, yeah, where you just, you just take care of it. Right. I'm actually about to say something that I wrote down when I first started this. Uh, <clears throat> what if you're stewarding like an artwork? Oh no, maybe you shouldn't. You should improve the artwork, but if you are stewarding art, there is so much you can improve. If you let's say you're given care over a painting, right? Mm -hmm. What does care over that painting look like? What does growth for that painting look like? Well, it looks like more people appreciating it, more people coming to see it. Maybe it looks like it being protected and cared for. Maybe just generally exposure. Maybe that painting needs a social media page. You know? Maybe it needs to be in a museum. And the museum needs to put a nice frame on it. And the museum needs to give it lights. The museum needs to make it easy and accessible. And everybody needs to see how great this painting actually is. It's very, so yes, you probably shouldn't add to the painting. But <clears throat> oh, maybe. Maybe it's a very bad painting.
Like Cleveland is just such a great area. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of shooting in the West too. You know, but like it's true. Just like reusing the knowledge of the whole area. Mm -hmm. What are you shooting in Cleveland? Mm -hmm. And that's for the uh, recording. The question that was just asked was, uh, or basically, who's to say what improvement is? Yeah. Right. That is so true. We have no clue. We have no clue what improvement is. Isn't that frustrating? Yes. Because we failed. Because we're bad stewards. But we have this hope of Jesus. We have this hope of being made into new creation. You know, we hope for new creation on the earth. We hope that things are restored. We are the first fruits of that restoration. Jesus is the firstborn among the dead. We are on our way into being like those good stewards. So as we participate in new life with Jesus, we actually gain ability to steward. So no, we don't know yet what good stewardship looks like. But we know what the direction is. <clears throat> Back to my notes. If something in your care remains as the same quality as you received it, it is, in my opinion, a gross failure to steward that thing. To have something in your care that does not improve is just as bad as you just destroying it, right? It is, it is a no-win situation if that thing is not improved. And the thing is, guys, I, I want you to think about this in terms, I wasn't gonna go into this, but I want you to think about this in terms of not like achievable like improvement. You know, like, like I necessarily did this and this and this to improve the thing that I'm stewarding. Um, but think about it as a direction, right? It's a mindset. It's, we are moving things towards the new creation. We are longing for the new creation. We're asking Jesus for his ability to steward the things in our care. So, <clears throat> my, uh, my lawn over there, I'm not, I wasn't going to tell the story, but my lawn at my house across the property there is um, in rough shape. And it's been a very, very slow process. I have no finances to take care of that lawn. But, through very careful, prayerful, slow process. I'm trusting Jesus to teach me how to take care of that lawn. And I've learned, I'm learning things. I'm learning secrets about that lawn that I, um, you know, I've learned that, that what I actually don't want is to plant the same invasive grass species that's all over the California. By taking my time with it, by the slow process of it, just like our own personal sanctification, Jesus is teaching me what it looks like to actually steward that place well. Sometimes it's not as quick as we'd like. You know, sometimes it's not instantaneous that we have a perfect understanding. He reveals things slowly to us. But I want you guys to think about your stewardship in the same way you think about your sanctification. Hope of change. Hope of growth. Right? Where am I? Let's see. Let's talk about my wife. Right? Dangerous. What does stewarding my relationship with my wife look like? You don't have dominion over it. But you can probably take a guess. You don't have to be um, St. Patrick to have a pretty good idea of what, you know, a good marriage might take. Care. Care, yeah. Attention. Intention. Intention, yes. Excellent. Time. Time. What if my wife and I, the way we are right now, our relationship is, um, if I just decide that our relationship, the way it is in our early 20s, is perfect, I would not like anything to change for the rest of our lives. That would be so bad. That would be the worst. That is the worst possible scenario I can think for my marriage, except maybe divorce, right? 
if my marriage does not get any better from here, not that my marriage is bad, but if my marriage is not improved by the time and effort I've put into it, I've failed it. Oh, so it's like, it's not that it's not good, it's just it can be better. Exactly. We need to change our idea about what is good and what is, well, we need to change our idea about what um, improvement looks like. Right? We get this human idea that improvement has to take something bad and make it good. But that's really not how new creation is happening. That's not how it's happening in me. Yes, I've been made clean instantly in the eyes of God by the blood of Jesus. But my sanctification is a slow process. Jesus is working me. He is taking me step by step by step. I am improving even though I am good. And I am being made gooder. Right? Amen. Gooder. Right? Gooder. Think about, I mean, think, cast your mind back to, this, back to our, our Eden imagery, right? To our Genesis 2. The earth was finished. You're telling me there's no improvement left? That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says the earth is finished. Now work and keep. What? I got more to do? There's more here? God did everything. No, no, no. God finished it. Now there's like this strange new understanding, this heavenly understanding of what improvement looks like that's different from our understanding. It's not evil to good. It's good and gr- good and good and good and increasing levels of good. <clears throat> Joe, here's your parable of the talents. We're not going to read it. You guys know it. Parable of the talents. There are three servants. The master's going away on a trip. So he says to the three servants, the first servant, he's like, here's a bunch of of gold. Take care of my gold. Um, I'll be back. And the second servant, he goes, here's less gold, but still a bunch of gold. Uh, Take care of it. I'll be back. And the third servant, he's like, here's some gold. Take care of it. I'll be back. The first two servants, what do they do? They take the gold to the banks. They trade it. They um, make some money, and they double and triple the amount of money that they have. Not for themselves, for their master. And what does the third one do? He takes his gold. He sticks it in the ground. And he waits until his master comes back. He's like me, standing in the field. You know? The master comes back. Who failed the stewardship test? It's the one that did nothing. The one of whom there was no growth. The master says, if you would have just put it in the bank, I would have gotten a little bit back on interest. But you didn't do that. You did nothing. And so it's a failure. All right, you guys ready for the third one? Creativity. Oh, this is all about imaging God. I must do what I see my God doing, right? Back to Eden. It is a law of stewardship that in order to steward, you must apply creative energy. And this makes sense, right? You can't steward without growth. We've learned that. And you can't grow things without imagining growth for that thing, right? Does that make sense? I don't just accidentally build a deck in front of my house because the staircase is bad, <laughs> right? That doesn't, I'm just like, whoa, whoa, whoops. It's like, no, no, what would be good here? I have to apply my creative energy, my redeemed creativity, right? The Holy Spirit moving in me, God sanctifying me, Jesus making me more like himself. Those things aid to my creativity, and I'm like, oh, okay, now I have this creative energy. I have this hope for something that is not yet. <sighs> God has made in humans this incredible nature of invention. 
creation, discovery, right? We want to build things. We want to make things. That is not evil. I hate so many religions. Modern Judaism is like this, where they just cut down anything that looks like creativity, right? And Christianity is getting that way too, right? It's like if your creativity is not directly funneled into some sort of like church context where it makes the Great Commission like the main focus, right? And I'm not saying those, those things are bad, right? But if it doesn't, if we don't strangle your creativity until it fits the church, then it's failed, you know? But that's just wrong, right? It, it's saying it out loud, we all agree, you know, that, that these things are valuable because they're valuable, because God created us and intended that we do them and enjoy doing them. It's part of the work and keep. And, guys, I believe as the more we're sanctified, the more we're made like Jesus, the more we're going to be creative. The more our creativity is going to flourish inside of us, the more we're going to be released to apply ourselves creatively in the way that God intended, the way that's good for us. We'll get to that in a little bit. We are unique in the animal kingdom simply by our ability to imagine things that aren't yet, right? We can imagine things and hope for them, things that don't exist yet. We cast our minds to the ideal thing, the thing hoped for, right? This is our hope of heaven. And we know that our purpose, right, our purpose is not divorced from exercising these things. Our purpose is often experienced in them. Our purpose is experienced in the act of work, in the act of rest, in the act of taking dominion, of working the things that we've been given dominion, in the act of creating, in the act of designing and imagining, the act of growing and making growth plans, you know? And we are desperately lost in this task without the hope of Jesus, right? All of these things are going to fail without the hope of Jesus. That's why we've failed so far, right? Even, even the good things in this world, the, the things that were like, actually, that was a good move. Good job, humans. We're done by people who believe this. We're done by people, think about hospitals, right? Missionaries that knew that these things were valuable anyway. Missionaries that knew that humans were valuable anyway. That they didn't need to serve some utilitarian purpose to be useful, to be needed, to be a part of God's plan, you know? In growing, in growing Christlikeness, we're going to experience a growing capacity to work. And when I say work, I mean good work, work that is stewardship. Our capacity to do this is going to get more and more and more. We need to be ready for it. And not work as we saw before, but work as it's intended to be, right? We're not going to get better at working like we worked when we weren't saved. We're going to get better at working like Adam worked in the garden before the fall. You guys ready for a, uh, another visual aid? My last one. Ready to touch something? Oh, you guys are right. It is a manzanita branch. Go ahead. I thought about it, guys. I thought about bringing poison to the cup. I wasn't going to do it. Yeah, go ahead and rub your finger along the, uh, along the, the bark and just watch it flake off right here on the men's part. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, pass it around a little bit. It's true. More smelling sticks. Here you go, guys. I don't. Oh, you're curious. I have the I have the Latin name. Arctostaphylos. Arctostaphylos. Yeah. What does man's need to need? I should have looked this up. Yeah, you might be hard pressed. It's a very old word. All right, guys. All right, manzanita is an amazing thing to me. It's actually, it's something that makes, oh yeah. What? It means little apple. Little apple. There you go, little apple. They produce little berries. Okay, so in my sort of approach, trying to uh, figure out what this sort of implicational stewardship meant for me, I got really into um, the flora and fauna of California. I want to love where I live, right? I want to love, I want to understand where I live so that I can steward it, right? Especially, I mean, I talked about my yard, right? I want to I wanna know what's good for my yard. I don't want to apply what I think is good for my yard. I want to know what truly is good for my yard. This is such a, a real world example, but this can be applied anywhere, right? I want Jesus to show me what is good for my yard. I want Jesus to show me what is good for my relationships. I want Jesus to show me what is good for my job. Anyway, in the search of this, uh, I discovered Manzanita, and I love Manzanita. It is a huge source of inspiration for me. Um, it is this amazing shrub plant that grows on the West Coast. It is one of the most endangered plants in the whole world. The ones that we have here aren't so much, but there are many different kinds, and there are, the, so among some of the most endangered plants in the world, there are two species of manzanita of which there is only one left. And one of them is in a vault hidden away somewhere on the coast. Are you kidding me? You can't, you can't go see it. It's the only one left. First of all, why do you think it's the only one left? Bad stewardship. But this plant is so amazing. It's, it's something that, that we, you know, we got to the point where there's only one left of this species because we didn't understand it when we first came. But the Native Americans understood it. They knew what it was good for. It's just perfectly set in this ecosystem. It is fire resistant. It blooms even more when there's fire. So it flourishes after there's fire. Its leaves have antibiotic properties. It, so they're literally, the cure for poison oak out here is manzanita leaves. It's just like um, you go in the Pacific Northwest, like you always, there's nettles, you get nettles, and there's always the fern that cures the nettles. It's, all, it's just right that you, there's stones throw from each other. It's like it's laid out for us. You mentioned earlier you can use the branches for tooth toothbrushes. That is true. You can use them for toothbrushes. Um, where am I here? And here's another thing, right? Remember I was talking about goat heads, these weeds that were introduced to stop erosion in California? Guess what really stops erosion in California? Manzanita. The manzanita. 
Right? But it's so slow growing, and we took so long to understand it that we decided we'd introduce our own awful things before we understood what the manzanita was for. Welcome to humanity. I, I heard this thing one time. Um, I cannot for the life of me remember the quote, but it says that science, like Christian science, not the Christian scientists like the cult, but science with the understanding of who Jesus is and what this world is made for, doesn't ask, like, the, the real question that it asks is, what is this thing for, right? Why, God, why? What is this useful for? What is this made for? And I, I say these things because there are so many secrets hidden in the man's manzanita that we just took so long to learn, right? It happened in Hawaii. They had a big rat problem, so they introduced a bunch of ferrets, but the ferrets left where the rats were active, and the rats left where the ferrets were active, and now they have ferret and rat problems. Yeah. This is uh, my fourth bonus point here, guys. You guys can add it down. It's education, right? It's not a law of stewardship, but I'll tell you, it will make it better. <laughs> there are secrets hidden in creation for us. There are secrets hidden, secrets in systems, secrets in the environment, secrets in our relationships, things that God has placed. Proverbs um, 25.2, you guys have heard this one probably a million times. It says, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, and is the glory of kings to search it out, right? Like a part of this human condition is discovery. And there are practical ways that you can engage in developing your ability to steward. And this is something I, I want you guys to chew on here. This is what, what I believe, an interpretation of scripture that I've come to think is true. <clears throat> the only limit to discovery available for us in creation is God's ability to create, the power of God to create. Does that make sense? So the only limit for discovery is God's ability to create. Which, does anybody want to guess God's ability or power to create? How big that is? There's a, there's a good word. We have an English word for it. Infinite. God's potential for creation is infinite. So if God's potential for creation is infinite, then our potential for discovery is infinite. That's so strange. I, it really blew my mind when I thought about this, guys. If God's potential for creativity is infinite, for creation is infinite, then my potential to discover God's creation is also infinite. Yes. As infinite as I am, right? As infinite as I can. There are so many secrets. Our ability to learn the secrets of God hidden in his creation, about his creation, is infinite. What more secrets are hidden in the manzanita, right? What things don't we understand yet? We don't know everything that there is to know about this. How could we? It seems like God's potential to create in the manzanita is, is just as infinite as it is to create in the cosmos, right? So just, I'm just like, there's, I could spend my life and probably my infinite life studying this plant. And I might still not never come to the end of the conclusions and the secrets that I could discover there. Think about your education like this, guys. Think about what you could learn like this. There is just so much that God has for you, so much to discover, so much to know, and not for knowledge's sake, but because it's valuable to learn those things, because they're valuable anyway, because he intended that we discover and enjoy discoveries. Of like there's infinite combinations of like first 
Yeah. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> this is a very small truth, actually, but it has huge implication of value. Because if that is true, right, if what I just said is really true, if there is an infinite amount of discovery for me, that changes everything, right? That has to change everything. My interaction with the world is forever permanently changed. I cannot ever think to master anything, no matter how small or simple it might seem, right? And, and there's so much wonder in it, too. If I cannot hope to master anything, that's just off the table. That's a huge weight off my shoulders. I never have to, ma I never have to master anything. How could I? There's infinite secrets in that thing. Right? There's only one master of that thing. I hope to be more like him. <clears throat> if we are to steward well, and I, I say this last one, education, not as a law of stewardship, but because I really think it'll help you guys. <sighs> if we're to steward well, we must discover the secrets. We must be learners. I think, guys, we are going to end a little bit earlier. I had no idea how long this uh, teaching would take, and I'm glad to know now. And you can see how, how learning, how applying ourselves to the education of whatever we're doing can increase our ability to do the laws, right? The laws of stewardship. Because if we know, right, that gives us more capacity for dominion, right? I can really exercise dominion once I know about the thing. Just like if I were to be given dominion over the Zimbabwean government all of a sudden, um, <clears throat> I don't know where to start. I don't know anything about the Zimbabwean government. That would be a really tough thing to steward in my dominion. I have like I don't know, good practices and uh, Christian education that I can try and apply. But I really need Jesus had to, to teach me how to, uh, how to apply myself to the Zimbabwean government. Having, having knowledge teaches us how to grow things, right? How to um, establish growth, how to plan for growth. Right? Think about like my yard, right? I have aspirations of planting things there. I want, I hope, oh, I hope to plant some grass there. I want to plant local grass. I want to plant grass that's going to be good for this environment, for the ecology. I want to plant grass that the local birds like. I want to plant grass that the local deer like. Right? But I have to know how to do that well. Right? If I want things to grow in that yard, I need to apply myself to knowing about those things. And knowing, obviously, it can give us building blocks for creative expression. Right? It, it's, like, um, it's like what they say with painting or drawing, right? You have to learn the rules before you can break them. Everyone, anybody ever heard that? Yeah. You have to, you know, when you, when you, the more you know about something, the more you have opportunity for creative growth. The more I understand about my wife, the more I have opportunity to apply my creative energy to our relationship. All right. We're wrapping up here. I have a little bit more. Hang on. Here's the thing that you guys need to write down, and I hope that you internalize it. Everything that God has given you dominion over is your responsibility to steward like this. No more, no less. 
Everything that God has given you dominion over is your responsibility to steward like this. That does not mean God is absent from that experience. It does not mean you can't ask for help. It does not mean you're not going to fail. In fact, I guarantee you're going to fail. But you're becoming more like Jesus. That's the hope, right? We want to be more like the good steward, more like our carpenter servant, more like the biologist poet, and less like his failures. It's really, really easy to get overwhelmed by this. I remember when I first sort of internalized this, I was like, oh, no. Remember what I said? Like, like this is what I'm made for. Oh, God, please help me. That's, I was, spent a lot more time in, oh, God, please help me. It's very likely that you will make terrible mistakes stewarding these things. Probably. Probably intentionally. Some of them unintentionally. I'll tell you guys a little story. When I was um, young, younger than I was when I was picking blackberries, I had this, um, I can't remember where I was or what happened, but I suddenly was just overwhelmed with this hope of heaven. I, I cannot even really explain it in words. I suddenly just had this reality settle into me that Jesus was coming back, right? That heaven could be tomorrow. I don't, know, I don't know what happened. I must have listened to a sermon or heard somebody talk or something like that. Or maybe I read my, my Bible, but I knew that Jesus was just around the corner. And so I just was weighted with excitement. I could not sleep at night because Jesus might come back while I slept. Right? I could not wake up in the morning because, or I, waking up in the morning was a joy because Jesus might come back that day. I don't know how long this went on for. It's just a vague memory in my, in my early childhood where I just knew that heaven was so close to me. So close to me. And as you dream about heaven, you start to think about what heaven's like. You start to think about, well, can I fly in heaven? Do I have a body in heaven? Is there, am I just an incorporeal spirit floating around? We can talk about this later. But am I just like, like what is heaven? If heaven is so near, what does that mean for me? I, I was like, are, is there paintball in heaven? Can I play paintball? Is that okay? Is that violent? God, is that violent? And, what? I've never played paintball. I don't even know why I was asking the question. It just occurred to me. I just was like, what? I, how, I, you know, I had all these questions about heaven that nobody seemed to be able to answer for me. And, um, and I, as I kind of matured, my understanding of heaven got more mature. I started to understand the scriptures more. I started to know what heaven was really like. And I remember just this moment of like recognizing the person of Jesus. I was overcome with the person of Jesus. And I knew that whatever heaven was, whatever my imagination could come up with, was not as good as what he had for me. I had this like weight of like, Jesus knows what's good for me. So I stopped dreaming about heaven like that. How could I, right? Just like God's creative potential is infinite. Jesus' creative potential to be good to me was infinite. I was like, what? What does this mean, right? I was so overwhelmed with the hope and love of Jesus, the understanding of who he was to me, the understanding of who I was made for him. Like, the weight of that just caused me to cast my trust on him. How could I even... Spend time imagining what I don't understand. What he has for me is better than that, infinitely better than that, 
so much better than that that I can't even conceive of the bare minimum of that, right? My understanding of my purpose became swallowed in the hope of Jesus. It was, it was like all, I mean, just my hope of my eternity just was out of my hands. It belonged to Jesus now. And that was good for me. I trusted that. I trust that Jesus has my eternity. You see, that's really what stewardship is about. This idea that Jesus knows what's good for me. Much better than I know what's good for me. Much better than I can dream about what's good for me. Much better than my capacity to hope what's good for me. Stewardship is not about work. It's not about self-glory. It's not even about what I can do for mankind or what I can do for the church. Or it's not even really about what I can do for God. It's the reality that what I do, or really more what Jesus would have me do, is good for me. The best thing for me. That what my hands do is not for any other value than it is good because Jesus called it good. Right? That's what I hope for. That's what the end of stewardship is. It is work that looks like what Jesus made for me to do. You know? It's not work for some accomplishment. It's not work for some utilitarian purpose. Even on this earth, right, as I try my best to steward my relationships, my job, my responsibility, right, my muscles, as I try my best to steward these things, it's not about this hope of accomplishment. It's about hope of Jesus and what he has for me. Because what he has for me is so much better than what I know. The end of what I can steward is unknown to me because Jesus is leading me there. Does that make sense? And here's the really big truth that I think you guys need to lay on to. Jesus is stewarding me. And he's not making mistakes. I must do what I see my God doing. Open up. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. <clears throat> Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Remember our Genesis 2 excursion. Are we there? Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, our king river, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street and the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. It's 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the, the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Remember I said the New Testament's language for work and keep is reign. 
Jesus has gone to prepare a place for me. This place is not an incorporeal, airy dreamscape where I'm going to float as some disembodied spirit. It is a garden city. It is a home for lost biologists, architects, artists. This is what I look forward to. This is the motivation behind my work, right? Hope of new creation, hope of Jesus. The basis of the joy that I receive in my work, that in some strange, mysterious way, I am peering beyond the veil into the new creation. That maybe as I engage in stewardship, I am somehow looking into what Jesus has for me. I am hoping for the new creation where Jesus waits for me. So, that's my notes. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, we love you. Lord, we don't know, we don't know what you have for us. We don't know what you are preparing for us. God, we want to know, we want to see more, we want to be ready for it. We want to be prepared to take our place in the new Jerusalem. We want to be prepared to take our place in restored Eden. We want to be good at what you've called us to do. God, we want to reflect you to this earth again. We want to reflect you to people again. Yes, Lord, we love you. We cast ourselves on you. We cannot do this without you. Teach us. Teach us what work means. Teach us what work is. Teach us how to steward. Teach us how to prepare. We love you, Jesus. We love you. Amen. A little early today. You guys can go and chew on that. Good job. Yeah.